selling okra on his bicycle to helping build Days Inn into one of the country's most successful roadside hotel chains to creating the Plant Riverside District, Savannah native Richard Kessler is an American business icon. He's also our latest Difference Maker, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. From the digital team at savannahnow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Bremer, and joining me for the September 18th episode is hotelier Richard Kessler. Raised locally in Effingham County, Kessler's life story is one of entrepreneurship and tenacity. He recently opened what will be his ultimate legacy, the Plant Riverside District on River Street's West End. Kessler joined the podcast recently and talked at length about his upbringing, his early professional career, and about Plant Riverside. We've broken the interview into two parts. This episode provides insight on Kessler the Entrepreneur. Next week, we'll post a follow-up focused entirely on Plant Riverside, with the lead architect on the project, Christian Sotil, sitting in to talk about the design and execution of the development. With that preamble done, here's the Difference Makers episode with Richard Kessler. Very pleased to be joined on the Difference Makers commute today by Richard Kessler, who is in the same room with Christian Sotil of Sotil and Sotil, an architect here in town who helped on the Plant Riverside project. But before we start talking about Plant Riverside and hotels and everything else, Mr. Kessler, you grew up in Effingham County. I think most people have read that or heard that. Can you kind of give us a little bit more background on growing up locally and what it was like and what some of your influences were? Sure. Uh, good morning, Adam. Uh, morning. A pleasure to uh, pleasure to be able to talk to you about uh, the project today and uh, what it means to us, uh, what it means to me personally, what it means to the community, um, and talk about the process we went through. But uh, just briefly about myself, and I'll answer any questions, but um, in 1946, I was born right here in Savannah, Georgia, in the Telfair Hospital. And um, uh, I have pictures my mother used to show me of uh, me in a, in a big black carriage um, walking me around Forsyth Park. And you can see the fountain, Forsyth Fountain in the background. Right. And it's um, it really gives me a lot of... Uh, emotional feeling and warmth towards Savannah when I think about, uh, think about, I can still see that picture in my mind. And when I get out in the mornings and I have the opportunity to walk around the park or jog around the park and the very same place that um, uh, mother introduced me to the park uh, a long time ago. So um, Savannah has uh, a lot of warm place in my heart. Uh, Savannah is uh, it's been a remarkable city. It's gone through its trials and tribulations from the time it was founded to the till today. I mean, it's it's always a challenge for Savannah moving forward, uh, as it is with any city growing that has great potential. The good thing about it, there has been some good leaders that have come along uh, over the history of Savannah that I think has guided it in the right direction, and I think that. Uh, and I, I think that uh, that's really important. And, and, and some important things obviously have happened by private enterprise in Savannah that has really uh, made it what it is. But back to myself a few minutes. Um, yes, I was born here and um, the first six months, my, my mother and dad um, rented from a Mrs. Williams. Uh, she was an older lady that had a place at 24 East Taylor Street. 
Mm-hmm. And that was really my first home for the first six months. And um, the day I was born, to, to Mother's chagrin, my father, being a doer as he was, he was in Rincon, Georgia, in the area where he grew up, and um, was pouring the foundation to our house, um, <laughs> which still stands today. So uh, she reminded him uh, of that from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, Dad built that. It was an all-brick house. And when you say an all-brick house back then, uh, they literally, uh, it was very little wood in it. They had a, little, a few wooden studs. But the rest of it was all plaster, concrete, and tile brick, and then face brick, et cetera. Because he really, everything he did in his life, he would build to quality. And quality was something that was always extremely important to him, no matter what his job was or, uh, or what he un- undertook. Everything was about quality and doing a good job and hard work and tenacity. So... Um, Dad built that house in six months for $6,000 in 1946. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was about a uh, 2,000 square foot house, not a big house, uh, but a nice house. And uh, had two or three bedrooms, had three bedrooms actually, two bedrooms, but later it did became a bedroom when my sisters came along. And um, which I had two sisters, one five years younger, one 10 years younger. and then my mom and dad. But in any case, growing up in Rincon was a treat. It was a very small town, probably 500 people at the time. Um, these 500 people, everybody knew you. You could not get away with anything. So you had 500, you had 500 parents out there uh, watching you, everything you did. And um, so you couldn't get away with anything. And if uh, there were no... I mean, the telephones were virtually non-existent at that time. And so uh, people communicated in different ways. Uh, i never forget, um, we'd come home, uh, early on we'd come home, and Mother really enjoyed flowers and landscape, and she had a lot of flowers around. And one time we, we would come home, and then a cows would be in our front yard, and and uh, they wandered in from somewhere and were eating her flowers and so forth. And that promoted uh, Dad to build a really a nice fence around the whole house. We lived on about two and a half acres there. And in the back, was uh, we had uh, chickens, we had pigs, we had cows of our own that were then fenced. And so uh, I grew up with a... A touch of farming experience, you might say. We had two very large gardens, which partly I enjoyed because it was uh, my cash crop back then was okra, uh-huh. which I used to uh, plant, grow, and uh, uh, made a deal with a, uh, a farmer, a uh, fellow named Alton Exley. Alton Exley was a farmer, wore his overalls, he was about five and a half feet tall, another short fellow, uh, real little chunky. Big smile on his face, round face, just a pleasant guy. And he would, uh, the deal was, he would pick up my okra every uh, uh, twice or three times a week, go to farmer's market in Savannah, take my okra, sell it, and he would take a percentage of it. And when I would come home from school, I would rush to the front porch and look in the mason jar to see what I got from my okra. So that was my cash crop when I was about, oh, 12, 10, 12 years old. Uh, growing so up in Lincoln, uh, from the start then. <laughs> well, maybe so. Um, 
And so, and then I used to market it also uh, when we had extra or whatever. Um, but I'd recruit my sister, and I'd get on my uh, my bicycle, my red bicycles, and she'd sit on the handlebar. I'd put uh, the okra in the basket, and we would ride around down the streets, the dirt streets at the time in Rincon. And uh, she was my uh, my salesman, so she would take these bags of okra, go knock on the doors, find out who needed some okra, they would buy it. We'd put the money in the jar and go down to the next house or the next uh, mobile home or whatever it was at the time. Uh, but anyway, that was my okra sales plan back then. As far as uh, fun things to do, um, I always look forward to uh, playing baseball in the summertime. Uh, however, I had one time I, I used to play. Uh, I used to play third base some. I played uh, uh, left field at, at times. Uh, and one time they needed a catcher, and I'll forget it was hot summertime. It was probably 100 degrees that day. And uh, they put me, suited me up in this catcher uniform. And every time I see a catcher today, I, I, I feel for them because you cannot imagine when it's 100 degrees summertime in this area and you got all this equipment on with your mask and your protection and your gloves and all that. And uh, they're throwing these balls at you and you're trying to catch them. And uh, it's, uh, I mean, you would get dizzy sitting there. I mean, I, I'll never forget it. But after doing that a few times, I decided I didn't want to be a catcher. So yeah, um, base that was better. some of my growing up. Yeah, so that was one of the sports I did. Uh, personally, um, I enjoyed basketball. My father uh, grew up basketball. He was quite good at it, actually. And um, and it turned out I was pretty good, too. Um, we had a team in the seventh, eighth grade. We divided up into four teams. And we got to pick uh, players and whatever. And my team and another got down to the runoffs. And um, we got, and their team had, he had, he was one of the, he had one of the first picks. So he picked the biggest, strongest, tallest guy in, in the school. And then he had a, one other tall guy, and they were pretty tough. And about, let forget about halftime, I often think about this, halftime, we were, at, we were behind probably eight or ten points at halftime. And it did not look good. And so I had to give my team a rallying speech and say, we're going to win. Uh, there's no question we, we've got to win this. We're going to win this somehow. We're going to do it. Do we all understand that? And everybody smiled and said, yep, we're going to win. I said, all right. We went back out there. And, um, and, during, and sure enough, we married the lead to uh, six and then four and then two. And the next thing, we were winning. And uh, we ended up winning the championship of the four teams from Rinkin, Georgia. And wow. uh, it, was, it was a big victory. And I think I had, that day I had 13 free throws, and I rang uh, 12 of those 13 free throws. That's how determined I was. <laughs> That's pretty so, good. So uh, I bet some of the professionals wish they had that kind of record. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, that's kind of growing up. The other last thing I will talk about for sports is marbles, and that was my favorite game, really. Um, I, actually, my father was a good marble player also. He taught me the basics of how do you shoot. Um, and I don't think I ever bought a marble in my life. Is that I was given a, ha a handful, three or four or five to start with. And I've always played for keeps. But I had two rules. 
And one rule was I would never play anyone younger than me because I didn't want to feel like I was taking advantage of anyone. And secondly, I would never play with a girl. And the reason is when you would, when you would win, and I would always win, playing with a girl, they would start fussing about it, they would cry, or they would whatever. And so I would feel bad, and so I'd give all the marbles back to them. So I would say, oh, my gosh, you know, I played, I worked for this, and now I've got to give them all back. So anybody, I had a lot of uh, uh, young girlfriends that uh, we did play marbles together and had a lot of fun. So those yeah. are some of the great members growing up in a small town and um, in, in Rinkin, Georgia. And then from there, as you know, my dad, by the way, uh, my dad um, went through the eighth grade. Um, his father died uh, early of a heart attack. Uh, grandmother had two or three, three girls left at home with her uh, and one younger, much younger brother, uh, my father's younger brother. And uh, they lived out in the country at a big farmhouse and had a farm. So that had to go back after the eighth grade and work on the farm and help the family through all that period, which was a difficult period. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he worked a couple of uh, manufacturing places here in Savannah, did not like that. Uh, his brother had become a master plumber with uh, Seconder, Emo Seconder. And, uh, and dad went through the training, uh, the union training, actually got a master's in plumbing himself. And uh, that became his profession and his work and his trade. And then years later, uh, he went to Rinkin. Uh, he, we were living there and uh, there was a need in Effingham County for a, a plumbing contractor. So he set up his own business. And then we put in the earth water system in Rinkin. We put in the the gas, natural gas system uh, for Rinkin back in those early years and did a lot of new houses and commercial work also. So that's, I grew up in that. Um, and dad continued that through the, through the, he was probably mid fifties, then late fifties and decided that um, given health and given everything that it was time to uh, wrap it up and retire from that. And he did. And uh, then I got him involved in other things. So uh, that was growing up. My mother, um, she was Valley Victorian in her class. Uh, mother grew up, her father was a sharecropper. And um, I went many times to their houses and they were basically uh, sharecropper houses as you would imagine. Um, her father was quite ill. He had emphysema, uh, had basically could not work. He was a very small man, very pleasant, wonderful people and um, the Dickerson family, and they were wonderful folks, had big hearts, real active in the Baptist church, and uh, my father's family was active in the Lutheran church at New Ebenezer. At New Ebenezer. So um, my mother was the, uh, like I said, a valedictorian in her class, and one day I came across her valedictorian speech, and which was very motivating. Uh, I was highly impressed with what she had to say. She was 16 years old at the time. She read a lot on her own also, by the way. And then she later went to a trade school here and learned uh, shorthand, typing, and other things right here in Savannah when she and dad lived in Savannah. So she was um, she was uh, a quiet individual, a very, very personal, a very sweet personality. If you had to Pick one word for her. She was one of the sweetest people you would ever meet. And 
everybody loved her and respected her because she was smart and sweet. Um, she was active in the garden club. Flowers were important to her, active in her church life at, uh, at Jerusalem with the church at Ebenezer. And um, that was her life and taking care of the family. So that's the household I grew up in and um, went to high school in Nethingham County after uh, graduate school in Rincon and then on to uh, uh, Georgia Tech. When I was thinking about school and where I wanted to go to college, neither of the parents had gone to college and no one I knew had gone to college. So uh, I asked my violin teacher, who was the part-time uh, counselor, about uh, which about colleges, and he and I said, "Do you have books?" He said, "No, I don't. I don't have any books on Indian schools, but I can get whatever you want." He says, "What are you thinking?" And I said, "Well, I don't know the name of the college, but I know what I want." And he said, "What is that?" I said, "I want to go to the most difficult school in Georgia." He said, "Well, that's Georgia Tech." I said, "Okay, that's where I want to go to school." I want to go to the most difficult school. He, so he got a catalog from Georgia Tech. I went through the catalog, applied, didn't hear a response. My good friend, uh, fellow named Bobby Ingram, uh, did hear ahead of me, and uh, he was accepted, but I hadn't received any re reply. So in August, believe it or not, uh, my family. And my, my mom, dad, and I got in the car, drove to Atlanta, Georgia, to sit down with Dr. Carmichael. Dr. Carmichael is head of administration and acceptance, student acceptance at Georgia Tech. He was a tall man, older fellow. He had to be at least 60 years old, 65 years old. I thought that was old at the time. I think he's pretty darn young now. Um, and Dr. Carmichael uh, invited me in his office. And he said, Mr. Kessler, what can I do for you today? I said, Dr. Carmichael, I applied uh, several months ago. I haven't heard from Georgia Tech, and I want to go to Georgia Tech, and I want to be accepted, and I come to see what I need to do to be accepted at Georgia Tech. He said, well, wait a minute. So he got up and went back to a filing cabinet. I can still hear that squeaking file filing cabinet as I sat there anticipating what he was going to do. Well, he went and pulled out a record. He looked at my record, he looked at, up at me, he said, let's guess what he said. Uh, he says, your grades are very good. You were your top math student in high school. Uh, you had, you were a student, you were president of the beta club, you were president of your class a couple of different times, you were editor of, the, of your annual, you, uh, you were voted most likely to succeed in your class. You had, uh, a, you were a leader, involved church work, and president of the, of the southeastern area of Luther League, the Ebenezer District Luther League. You've been active in all these things. And he said, that's pretty impressive. And he said, but there's one problem. And your grades are great. And I said, what's that? He says, your standardized scores were low. And I said, yes, sir, I'm fully aware of that. I've never done well on standardized tests. Right. And... Uh, he said, well, you didn't eat here either, did you? I said, no, sir. And he looked back up at me, and he looked down and thought about it, and looked back up at me, and he said, well, Ms. Kessler, he says, Franklin, I don't think you would ever make it at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech is a very competitive place, and you've got students here with much higher scores that you're going to be competing with, and I'm not sure it's a school for you, and I'm not sure if you're ready for Georgia Tech, and I don't think you can make it here. And I looked at him and I said, uh, Dr. Carmichael, you know what? I said, all you have to do is say yes and let me in and I'll take care of the rest. 
I will make it at Georgia Tech. Uh, so if you just say yes, then uh, I will make it at Georgia Tech. He looked back up at me, looked at me, smiled, and said, okay, Mr. Kessler, you in Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. So uh, three or four weeks later, I was packed up and moved into my dormitory, Glenn Dormitory at Georgia Tech with three other guys. It's a four-room dormitory and started the experience. Well, when it came around Christmas time, <laughs> Uh, I was about to conclude <laughs> Dr. Carmichael was right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, God. I mean, chemistry classes, uh, these math classes, I mean, it was a heavy schedule. I mean, heavy stuff. And and I had never had it. And these other students, I found out, they had it in high school. They went to Northside High, and they were top students. And they went to Rensselaer Polytech before they came to Georgia Tech. And they, I mean, these were top, top competitive students, and I understood now what Dr. Carmichael was talking about. And I came home, and I was just emotionally and physically and just exhausted and tired out. And my grades, I mean, I made a couple of Ds, I made a couple of Cs, and I made maybe one B. And uh, my grade point was 1.7. Um, and you had to have it too, otherwise you're in warning. So I started out in warning at Georgia Tech. But, you know, two things. And it continued like that for the second quarter and then the third quarter. But every quarter it got a little better. But, you know, I never dropped a course. I never quit. I never dropped a course, and I never failed a course. Did I make some Ds? Yep, I did. Did I make some Cs? Yep, I did. But I never would give up. And I never failed the course and never failed. So when it came then to the sophomore year, frankly, I caught up with everybody. And my grades had gone from B's and C's to B's, primarily B's and a few C's. And then the third year, it was B's and A's. And then by the time I did my senior year uh, in engineering, it was all in, uh, it was all basically A's and a few B's. And then, um, I wanted to go to graduate school, interviewed, uh, looked at a few colleges around. I went up to uh, I went up to the University of Pennsylvania. I went up to actually interview at the bank in New York. I had uh, like 10 job offers. I had uh, 12, um, I had 12, I had 12 interviews with different companies, larger companies primarily, all over the US, on particularly the East Coast. I should say, and um, I was offered, I don't know, eight or nine uh, different jobs out of those interviews. And one of those was in New York, and I was coming back through, I stopped, stopped by the Wharton Business School because uh, I knew it was a good business school, and I was interested in it. I got there, it was a winter day, it was cold, it was raining. Uh, I went to uh, about four of the classes, and honestly, two or three of the classes I already had all that material when I was a sophomore at Georgia Tech. I said, right. well, why do I need to do this? I said, I've already had this. I was in industrial and systems engineering, which was really high math because I took the uh, operations research uh, direction, which is all high math. Basically, I think another couple of courses I would have had a master's also in mathematics at Tech. Yeah. But anyway, um, anyway, <laughs> I also looked around, and when it came lunchtime, I looked around in this big room where we had lunch, 
and I did not see one pretty girl in the whole place. And all the classes I went to, I did not see one attractive girl. And I'm thinking, Richard, what are you thinking about? Why would you come up here when it's cold and rainy, messy, gloomy, and not a pretty girl in the whole school? Why don't you go back to Georgia that has all these beautiful young women uh, in the Peach State and go to Georgia Tech? So I went back and uh, applied at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech uh, offered me a full scholarship uh, at the time through the timber industry, believe it or not. Because I'd worked as an engineer at the Union Camp for a couple summers. We are speaking with Richard Kessler on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. That's S-E-D-A dot org. Now back to the discussion with Richard Kessler. And I uh, got involved with uh, the whole timber industry. was fascinated with it. And um, anyway, they gave me a full scholarship. And EVAC had a full scholarship. And the new program they had started had to do with engineering and medicine uh, at Georgia Tech and hospital and engineering and hospital operations. But I, I couldn't get too excited about that. So I took the, uh, I took the other scholarship, which... Uh, Actually, ended up that became uh, my thesis is location of pulp and paper mills, which actually the, the programming I wrote for that could be used for anything, locating anything. And actually, while I right after I finished writing the thesis, and during the time I was having to defend it to the professors, etc., was uh, uh, the U.S. Army came to Georgia Tech and asked uh, my professor, who was a Johns Hopkins graduate doctorate in engineering to see if he could write a program for locating uh, military training bases around the world. He said, actually, my student just finished writing. And uh, he said, so if it's okay with him, uh, I will give this to you and you'll have the program for locating uh, military training bases around the world. So they did and they used it. And uh, it was a breakthrough um, analysis, a breakthrough uh, mathematical program because no one could ever figure out how to get through um, uh, one of the major complications uh, in writing such a program. And at 2 o'clock one morning, sitting in the IE building, it finally dawned on me how to do that. And uh, so, and then I had to mathematically prove what I had done. And that was another challenge. But in four quarters at Georgia Tech, which is 12 months, was my goal. I wanted to have my master's degree, and I made it by the skin of my teeth. And uh, wrote my thesis, published it. It's, it's in the library of Georgia Tech. It was used, like say, in the military, and 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 
and uh, through that master's program, I also took courses in finance and and uh, city planning. I was always fascinated with the whole idea of building a city, and um, so I put I took all of my electives and put them in things of finance and real estate and city planning. The rest of it was in engineering. I'm at so. That's what brought me to, uh, kept me in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, ended up with Georgia Tech. Uh, I mean, going to uh, Cecil Day, got to know him. Uh, he, at the time, was selling his apartments. Uh, he was nine, ten years older than I was. He also was an industrial management major at Georgia Tech, had been in real estate sales in Atlanta. Later on, developed his own apartments, and he was selling those apartments when I joined him. And then, about a couple months later, I came in. He took a trip with his family to California. I came in, and uh, there were three yellow sheets on my desk. I read them, and it said "Days in America" on the top. And I read it. It was handwritten on yellow paper, and I read it. And he came by a little late and said, "Richard, uh, let's talk about what I put on your desk." I said, "Sure." And he said, what do you think? He said, uh, basically, what do you, you think we can do it? And I said, certainly. I don't see why not. Uh, so why not? And he said, well, let's do it. So he said, you want to round up the rest of the guys and let's talk to them about it and see what they think. So I went down the hall, rounded up the rest of some of the guys who had worked in the department development and management. And uh, we all met. About five of us met. And for a couple hours, went through it. And then he was ready to call for a vote uh, among these people. Uh, and he realized they weren't convinced yet. And he said, okay, Richard, you good with numbers and you got all these numbers here. So if you will stay behind and explain these numbers, uh, this case closed to these folks, a couple of folks that were left in the room. And he said, we went over to the Burger King next door and get a burger and we'll bring you one back. And when we get back, hopefully you've been able to convince some of these numbers or are good and correct. So we did all that. They came back. We talked for another 30, 45 minutes, and it came time to vote. And uh, everyone went around the table, and everyone said yes. Some had questions, and some had big questions. And one of them, uh, actually one of the people sitting around the table, never voted. He would not commit and did not believe in it and never voted. Um, and, uh, but he had all the other votes. He said, okay, well, we're going to do it. And the vote basically was to commit to building three days ends, uh, on the interstate. He had built a little small, um, 50, 60 room out at Tybee. Out of Tybee, right. Yeah. yeah. That was the first days in, but really that was, that was just, uh, more a real estate play. He was tinkering with the whole idea at the time. And then after this California trip and, and uh, whatever, then he got more serious about it. And then uh, that's where Days In really then started. And the first one was uh, we built was in uh, Precise, Georgia, and then the state, and then McDonough, Georgia, and then Unadilla, Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, up and down the interstate. And I was head of, uh, I grew up in construction with my father. Um, um, I was uh, in charge of the whole development program. I was 23 years old, um, and so my job was to um, work with a uh, 
some super, two superintendent type guys uh, that he had found somewhere. I don't know, we found them along the way. And uh, they would coordinate uh, the work in the field and on the buildings. We had a set price we paid them just to see for their work. And my job was to solve all the water problems, sewer problems, surveying, engineering problems. Uh, I would negotiate all the subcontracts, all the plumbing, electrical, all the subcontracts, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, at night, I would go, after going home and having dinner, I'd come back and I had to approve all the invoices, et cetera. And also, I was an interior designer. So I picked out all the furniture, I chose the colors, the paintings on the wall. So if you didn't like them, it was me. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, and the plans, I, I think about what we will get to in a few minutes about the plans at Plant Riverside and all of David's ends, we never had as many plans as we did on that one, this one project. <laughs> I think we had, we built those David's ends at the time with three sheets of plans for Christian. <laughs> we wouldn't have much work to do. <laughs> and everything was written in pencil, right? Every, everything was written in pencil, and uh, I would go to these little towns and counties, and, and, and many times I'd convince them to do something for us to help us get this day's end built, uh, get a water line run out to the property, or uh, would do whatever. I had to get sewer plants uh, designed and a sewer plants built, which I did a number of those up and down the state where there's no sewer capacities. And actually, drilling wells in many cases. I mean, it was crazy. Anyway, that's how the whole start was, and then if you want to know, uh, and then I did that in, in, in mid-72, and I'll wrap this up, and then we can get on to the project. In mid-72, um, I was uh, traveling a lot, and I was just coming, I went, I would make the circuit, and uh, it would take me about a week to make the circuit. And during the circuit, I went down through Orlando, and this is like 1971-72, and Disney was just getting started. And I came back on a Monday morning and went to Cecil's office. Cecil, I look, if we're in the real estate business, you need to send somebody to uh, Orlando to set up a real estate operation uh, because that place is going to boom, and we need to be there, and it's going to be a great market. And he looked at, looked at me and he said, Richard, when do you want to go? I said, well, Cecil, I got 17 projects under construction right now up and down the interstate. He said, well, you've developed a team of people, haven't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you can still be involved with that, and, uh, and you, then you can take over all the development yourself then in, in Florida, finish up all these projects, help them as they need some help finishing up the others in other states, and then you start the company for us. And we'll capitalize it with $1,000. You put in $300, I'll put in $700, you figure out the rest. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, all right. And uh, so I called my wife and said, meet me. We had just bought a house a month or so before. That weekend, we put the pictures on the floor around the house and uh, where we were hang the pictures. And so we met on the Atlanta Museum doorsteps to have a sandwich and for me to introduce this idea of going to Orlando. And she said, sure, okay, sure, let's do it. And so uh, that's what we did. So on my birthday, May 28, 1972, um, we drove, I drove, we drove to uh, Orlando, Florida to uh, move into a rented apartment that I'd set up for us uh, as before I bought a house. And, um, 
to set up a company, to rent offices, to rent the office, to build a staff, and to start building Days in America with a thousand dollars in the bank. Right. And, and when you look back at it, you say, "How did I do that?" <laughs> but uh, I did, and it was a lot of fun, a lot of exciting, and and we built a heck of a team in Florida. Uh, from that, within a year, I'd started. I went to CISO and said, "We need to be in Richmond, Virginia." Up on that end, we need to be building Washington D.C. area, Richmond. You know, that's on the other end of 95 in the interstate, and that's really important because that's the same people that come to Orlando that we build them for. And he said, "Okay." I said, "Well, I'm, I'm equipped to uh, go ahead and open that operation too. I've got a guy that I hired, a fellow named Bill Headley, who was an architect by education, has some construction experience. He's been working with me now for almost a year. Uh, I'll." set him up as head of the office and I'll work with him and find all the sites and we'll build that area. And then we did, and that was an operation. And then simultaneously he had two other partners that he had started two other uh, smaller realty operations, one in Albany, Georgia, and one in uh, Savannah. And both of them were giving problems. And so he called me one day, he said, Richard, would you like to be my partner in these other two companies? I said, certainly. He said, okay, uh, I'll finance purchase for you, but you'll have to pay the note. And I said, all right, I'll do that. So I bought out his other two partners and then took them over, fixed them, and then we built apartments and days in through those companies. Uh-huh. And so then I had the Richmond company going, I had the Orlando company going, and set up a day mortgage company also in Florida to help me. And I hired a local banker to run it to um, finance these things we were building. And so, and then I set up an operating company, and Cecil would not let me operate uh, uh, the Days End because we were building, I was building them and leasing them to Days End, which was a basically management company. It didn't own the hotels. Cecil owned the hotels personally, and then in our companies that I was developing, we were owning them together. So, um, so I set up. I said, well, I'm going to set up a management company for a restaurant. So I did a I did a upgrade design of a Waffle House and called it Daybreak, and it was really a neat little property. Actually, there was one right next to the higher first high-rise Days Inn, which is right there on Bay Street here in Savannah. I built a Daybreak there, and later it stormed down. But it's a neat little uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner place. Uh, had stained glass lights, uh, chandeliers, little lights hanging over the table. It was nicely done, and. Uh, it was a dress, a very much dressed up uh, Waffle House. But the Waffle House, I was always fascinated with how efficient it was. Oh, yeah. Being an engineer. And actually, the Waffle House, turns out the, the guy who owns Waffle House today is Joe Rogers, who was my classmate at Georgia Tech and industrial engineer. Very smart yeah. guy, very smart, and, and, a, and a hard, hard worker. And I always admire his ability and uh, he's done a great job with that company anyway um so i did all that and running all that days in ran into the oil embargo got into serious serious trouble um very serious trouble and then Cecil came to me and wanted to know if i would he wants me to come back to atlanta and take over all of days and do what i do with these other companies fix them get them working properly and um and uh, restaffed from top to bottom, and it was, it was honestly, it was a mess. Um, uh, 
at the time. Uh, and so it was a, and then I ended up bringing the key people out of the Orlando operation up and put them into key positions and restaffed all the top management of days ends and fixed it financially and fixed it operationally and uh, created new things and started building, built the first high-rise days in in Savannah on, on uh, Bay Street and uh, then later opened up operations in Denver, Colorado, uh, took over a messy situation he had in Texas, fixed it and uh, also set up a company in uh, Sacramento, California and built days ends up and down the coast in California. So I was able then over the years, nine years that I ran Days Zen, I was 29 years old and I was the CEO and president of Days Zen. And a few months later, I became the chairman, president, and CEO. And uh, I was 29 and I was the youngest president in the lodging business uh, at the time. And uh, probably still, probably still hold that record of any national major uh, uptown company. Anyway, ran all those companies. We later took all that merchant into one big company, uh, Day Zins. So Day Zin now was an operator and owner of companies. Uh, the Day family was the largest shareholder. I was the second largest shareholder. And then we had a variety of people in the company that were other shareholders in the company. Um, so ran that until uh, 90, until not, uh, 84. And uh, the Day family decided to sell it in 84. They sold it. Everybody cashed out and went our separate ways. And that's when I started my company, uh, Kessler Enterprise. Right. And why did you and, why did you focus on higher end properties when you started your own versus versus uh, I guess quality over quantity? Yeah. Well, that's a good good question. Uh, believe it or not, um, you're right. Day uh, Sense was a quantity product, but also um, Given my training from my father about quality, uh, everything that I really did in Days Ends of those days, particularly when I was building them and then later on when I ran Days Ends, can always increase the quality level. And that's one thing I always focused on. And, uh, and we, we really built a good product, uh, a very good solid mid-market product that we rented at very attractive prices that was affordable to folks. Um, but if you might remember something called the Mulberry Inn in Savannah, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Um, you remember that? Well, that yes. was owned by the Day family and me. And that was my idea. I had been to Europe uh, a couple times and had seen all these independent hotels and how well they did. And I said, you know, nobody's doing anything like that in America. Why don't we do it? So I started uh, a whole program of boutique hotels. That I was going to build through the Days Zen concept, but totally different, separate from Days Zen. I didn't want them intermixed at all, uh, not even through the standard reservation system. So I built in 19, uh, I did the, uh, the high rise Days Zen in 1979, 79. In 1980, approximately, I bought the old Coca Cola bottling plant. And uh, at about the same time, I also bought the Bargain Corner, if you remember it. It was the historic building built in 1888, adjacent to the Days Inn. The high-rise Days Inn we built, and I built the parking lot behind all that, and uh, that became the Days Lodge. And simultaneously, I bought the property by the same time 
uh, the Coca-Cola bottling plant to build the first boutique hotel really in Savannah uh, called the Mulberry Inn. And I did use the Mulberry Inn because obviously the, uh, the importance of the silk industry to this area and yeah. the mulberry trees, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, uh, that was the first one. The second one I did uh, was in Orlando, Florida, uh, which was named, became known as the Orlando, uh, became known as the Heritage Inn. And it was also very successful. Both of them were very successful immediately. And when I did, I knew I was on to something big at the time. And, uh, but that then just a year or so later, uh, Day family decided to sell Days Inn, and so everything sold at the time. So later then, I came back to, in the 90s, I came back to the idea that this boutique hotel thing still has legs, and it's, it, it still has a place in the market. And so I started building boutique hotels, and and, uh, and uh, actually the first one I built was in uh, Orlando, Florida. It was the, it was the, uh, it was the Grand Bohemian in Orlando, downtown Orlando. There's a 250-room uh, Grand Bohemian Hotel, and then uh, built others. I built the Casa Monica, it was an 1880 building in South Austin, Florida. I built the uh, a vault from Disney, uh, their boutique site in, uh, in uh, Celebration, built the Bohemian Hotel there. Originally, it was called the Celebration Hotel, later we named it put the Bohemian name on it to tie it all within our program. And then I continued expanding them uh, all over. So today we have, um, we're finishing up right now our 12th boutique hotel, very high-end, four or five-star level boutique hotel, just opened Charlotte and obviously I was plant Riverside here in Savannah. So that brings us now to where we are, which is the subject and the reason Mr. Sortiel is here to talk about um, uh, Savannah, Georgia, to talk about why, what we did, why we did what we did, and what uh, what we think we really did correctly. Um, this morning, I woke up and I was thinking. Uh, I just got in from a long, long trip, and uh, and I was not ready to wake up when I got up this morning uh, because I've been traveling for twenty hours or so, and. Um, and I woke up and I started thinking, okay, what questions has he asked me? And one of them, I was saying you were asking about the background, how we stuck, uh, how we decided to do what we did on the river. And three, three T's, three things came into mind. And the three things were um, timing, team, and tenacity. And I said, you know, that pretty much summarizes it. And I thought a little more about it later this morning, and I added a couple of things to it. And I would say timing, talking, thinking, team, and tenacity. So it's really five words that describe the process. That's a wrap on part one of The Difference Makers with Richard Kessler. Part 2, with the focus on Plant Riverside, will publish the week of September the 21st. Thanks to Mr. Kessler and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as Savannah's go-to authority on hurricanes, storm modeler Chuck Watson, convenience store magnate Greg Parker, and Coastal Georgia Health Director Dr. Lawton Davis. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. 
On behalf of myself and producer Asha Gilbert, thank you for listening.